We are made right because of the precious blood of Jesus Christ and what he's done on the cross of Calvary. We're going to read uh, the text this morning, Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. And I titled this morning's message, Can I Have an Amen? Can I have an amen? Amen. Oh, I love that. And so you can do that. I love when we, we interact in, in the service like that. Um, and that's really what this is about. And we'll talk about uh, what that means, uh, the amen. Uh, and that's exactly what Paul will lead us to as we study this text. We'll read verses one through eight here this morning, and we'll pray and jump into this. It says in verse one, what then shall they say? Now we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Amen? Amen. Father, we, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we, we love digging into it. We love studying it together. We love how it changes the way that we think. Uh, Lord, your word tells us not to be conformed to this world, and that's the last thing that we want, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And so, Lord, we just rest in and we trust in today that, Lord, as your word goes forth, that God, as we listen and we think and we ponder it, uh, as your word says, we say la, we stop. Lord, and we consider it, that God, it'll do what you purpose to do. That's what you promise, that your word never returns void to you, that it always does what you desire. And God, your desire is great. Your desire is that it would change and transform us, that it would produce fruit in our life. And so, Lord, we open our hearts to all that you have for us. We love you. We thank you for this day. Lord, I thank you for Kenny and for Callie. Thank you for Logan. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to pray with them and for them. I thank you for their, their dedication to you, that as they study your word, they, they want the things that your word declares for them, for their family. Lord, what a blessing that is. And may you bless them. May you bless your church today. God, we're here to love you, Lord, in response to your love for us. We're here to seek you, Lord, in response to your seeking us, God. Thank you. Thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for what you've done for us. We pray that you would be glorified in our heart, in our mind today, in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, all this week, you know, as I, I've been studying for this morning, there was an old bumper sticker. You know, you don't see many of those anymore. They used to be really popular. Huh? You see, sometimes it's now states, you know, people where they travel or, you know, national parks or something. But um, there was an old bumper sticker years ago when I first got saved. I remember seeing it all the time. It said, you know, you, you maybe remember this. It said, if God said it, you remember what it said? That settles it. Or it said, God said it. I believe it is how it really went. And then it says, and that settles it. And I remember as I started reading my Bible, I thought, you know, that's a great, it's a great bumper sticker, but it's not theologically accurate because it really should say, you know, that God said it, that settles it, right? And we do well to believe it. You know, not everybody believes the word of God, but the beauty of it is, you know, God has said it and that settles it. And, and again, what Paul is going to be talking about is, you know, how do we become right with God? 
we become right with God in our relationship is when we believe that God said it and that settles it. And then we trust what God says. Amen. That we don't challenge it. We don't fight against it. We can read all through scripture. You know what happens when we fight against the word of God? Who wins ultimately? God does. You know, we waste a lot of time and a lot of energy. Like I said, we look back on our lives. Most of us at some point have said, you know, if I only knew then, you know what I know now, as you look back and you go, because his word is truth and his word is life and his word is life giving. And so, you know, as I, I look at this this morning, I mean, I want to say this, like right out of the gate here today, um, it's probably the most important thing that you could get out of today's message and a thought. And if you're a note taker, I want to encourage you to write this down. And I want you to think about, you know, this, this statement I'm about to say here is that, do you know that what you believe about God is the most important thing about you? Let me, let me say that again. What you believe about God is the most important thing about you. Because what you believe, truly believe about God is going to have an impact on everything that you think and all that you would do. You know, circumstances, like I said, in, in life, I mean, they don't really make you or break you. They simply do what? They expose you. you know, like some people go, oh, you bring out the worst in me. You go, but it's in you. I mean, there's the problem. You're blaming me, but it's in you. You know, it's there. You know, that's one of the things people in marriage, they go, oh, you know, she just or he just does this to me and it brings out. And you go, that's why you're married. God's trying to get to that very thing that you're trying to hide and God's trying to expose to get out and deliver you from. And so he uses our spouses, you know, to do that, that very thing. And yet, you know, like James says, you know, why do you fight? You know, because you have not, because you ask not, you know, we're, we're, we, want, we want something there. And so, you know, again, understand, you know, what we believe about God is the most important thing about you because, and this is just as important because it determines in the true sense what you believe about everything else. And so we need to have a right thought about God here. So if you've been in this study, you know, in the book of Romans, you know, for three chapters now, you know, Paul has demonstrated, uh, like I said, as a good prosecuting attorney that Every one of us is guilty before God. There is none righteous, no, not one. And he did a pretty good job. If you've been with us, if you haven't, just go back and study chapters one, two, and three. He said in, in Romans chapter three, just going back to what we looked at last week, he said, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so what Paul was saying, there's to the Jews especially, no amount of law keeping you know, can change or alter man's condition of being lost. You know, we have to trust and rely completely on the mercy of God. That, that's what he's bringing us to. That the only hope of salvation is trusting in the mercy of God. And so the, the question, you know, began to be asked, you know, by the Jews and maybe by many of us that are here today, how does a person become saved? That, that's really the question that the Apostle Paul wants to bring us to. It's exactly what Peter desired to do in the book of Acts. Remember, as he's laying out, he says, you Jews. And he then begins to tell me, you're the one who crucified the son of glory. And it says that it just it brought conviction on their heart. And so their natural response is, well, then what must we do to be saved? And Peter loved to then go and lay that out. And the same thing is true for us. Paul wants to bring us to that place. How can we come to a place that we're, we're honestly acceptable before God? How does that occur? And then he went on, and this is what we began to study last week in Romans chapter 3 and verse 24 through 26. Here's what he said. Being justified, remember that, that term is what? Just, just as if I'd never sinned, right? That's what he's saying there. Just as if we'd never sinned freely, freely. 
What does the word freely mean? It's free. It's a gift. What can you do with a gift? There's two things you can do with the gift. You can receive the gift or you can what? Reject the gift. That's it. So salvation is a free gift, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, says, whom God set forth as, and we looked at this word last week, as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed because God being sovereign knew that Jesus was ultimately going to go to the cross so he could delay his judgment, okay? It says to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So if a person is going to be saved, if a person is going to be justified by Jesus Christ, it is going to be by faith alone. Sola fide. Faith alone in the blood of Jesus Christ. That word propitiation, you know, we, it's a big word, but it's a, it's a word you need to know. It's a word that hopefully Logan will learn very early in his life. Those are important words. They're theological words and they have substance. And when you get it and when it fully sinks in, it's life-changing. That's what's so special about that. You think about propitiation, you know, because you think there's really two things that occur with propitiation. Not only, you know, is it atoning for a damage that has been done, and that was our sin against God, but it does something else. And, and it's, it's, I know this as a pastor and any one of our pastors who counsels with people, it's the biggest struggle that people have with regard to faith. It's not the atonement. They go, oh, I get that. I, I get that Jesus died. But it's when you start personalizing it and you go, that Jesus died for me. And so not only did, you know, when we think about a propitiation that Jesus satisfied the wrath of God, but he also did something else. He satisfied the anger of God. That's why, you know, when we share the gospel, we can tell people, we go, God loves you. That's why when, when John 3.16, it says, for God, what? So, what? Loved, that he loved the world. How could he do that? Only by the propitiation of what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross. He didn't just satisfy the wrath of God. That's what I said. We can wrap our minds around that part. It's when you personalize it because you know you and I know me, and you know the sin that still exists in your life. Maybe it's not an outward sin. Maybe it's just the attitude of your heart, like the apostle Paul. He's going, you know, when I studied the law, he's going, man, I, I, I was awesome. I, I, I kept all the commandments until I got to number 10. That's pretty sad, right? You're going, number one, got it down. Number two, got it down. Number three, got it down. Oh, yes, 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 yes. One more. Number 10. Now shall what? Not covet. And you realize covetousness isn't an outward sin. Covetousness is what? It's an inward sin. It's a sin of the heart. And then he's going, and then I realize what? I've broken every law, every command of God, only to prove what? All have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. And so to think of that word propitiation, atoning for the damage that's done, and then to appease or to satisfy the anger of God, that God poured out his wrath upon his son so that he didn't have to pour it out on you and me. And that's the, that would be one of the, the deepest, really, lessons you'll ever have to learn in your life. Because there's not a one of us in here that doesn't, to a certain degree, because of the fall, have trust issues. Because you go, well, you know, because what you see, you know, how, how, do I, how do I trust a God who I don't see when I see all the things around me and they're not all very good, right? And so it brings that into challenge. That's why we say it's so important for us, you know, as a church, 
that as Logan grows up, that he would see Christ in you, the hope of glory, that he would see Christ in me, the hope of glory. That would do what? That it would just be easy. Because really, what's the, what's the big struggle that the world has with the church? They go, we're just a bunch of hypocrites. And you go, in the truest sense, we are. And you go, we, we, we claim to be things that we're not, as opposed to just going, you know, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Amen? There you go, and, and it's not anything that I've done. I didn't deserve heaven. Heaven is a free gift. But somehow when we get saved, you know, we've walked with God long enough, we try to come to this point that we go, I, I need to present myself in such a way that it makes the world go, that God made a really good choice when he picked Mike. No wonder God saved Mike. No wonder he saved you, right? And you go, why did he save you? We'll never fully comprehend it. It's beyond comprehension. Because it's in the heart of God. He's a choosing God. He's an electing God. He's a saving God. When we think about propitiation, you know, you think about God's love is so pure. His mercy is so pure. I mean, if, if there's, no, there's no strings attached. You think about that. You go, oh, what, what's the string? You go, oh, we have to do something. And you go, well, he's called us to believe. I mean, to trust him, to trust not in our faith, you know, people go, I, we have to faith. I have faith. I have greater faith than you. And you go, it's faith. He's going, he's given to every man a measure of faith. Our faith is even a gift from God. Faith comes by what? Hearing and hearing comes by what? The word of God. So even the growth of your faith is attributed to what? To God himself. Christ being formed in you, right? Being fashioned in your life. But because of, again, Jesus' death on the cross, we can know the love of God. We can see it in action, right? It's not just Jesus came to tell us that God loved us. He showed us how much God loved us, that he would die in our place. You think of most, you know, love stories, you know, that exist. There's a hero and a heroine, right? And, you know, and you go, and what, somebody's trapped, somebody's, you know, held behind enemy lines, and someone risks, you know, heaven and earth to do what? To rescue them. And that's what Jesus did, you know, um, Fantasy in the true sense is birthed in reality, not the other way around, because everything stems from the word of God and what God has done for us. Nothing is held over our head. There's freedom in Jesus, amen? And that's so hard for us to comprehend. I read a story this week um, by an author, and he said, not long ago, he said, I read one of the saddest stories of the Civil War period. He said, it seems like there was this young man who lived in Vermont during this period of time, and he was called on by the authorities of the Union Army to enlist and to go south to fight. It says the man was married and had four children. It was not common for the Army to draft men with families, but the war was not going well for the North, and they needed the extra manpower. So one of his dearest friends from youth up lived next door to him, but had never married and had no children. One reason this man had not married and had no family was that he had been part of his family business with his father and had kept him busy most of his adult life. He and his father were very close, and so the family business fared well. However, when he heard that his best friend was having to go south to fight, he made an appointment with the Union Army officials, and he said to them plainly, please let me go in his place. I have no wife, no children, and they need him desperately. The officials contended, but you and your father are blacksmiths, and we need you here to continue to make equipment to supply our army. Yes, he responded, but my father had a successful business before I even started helping him, and I assure you his work will not diminish in the least. 
Finally, the authorities decided they would allow this man to go in the place of his friend who was married and had several children. His friend and that family were quite grateful and for their livelihood depended upon this man staying home. The young man trained hard. He prepared himself for battle and he went to the South to fight. In one of the hottest battles of the war, the young man fell in the death at the hands of the Confederate sword at the Battle of Chickamauga. It says, when the news reached the married man and his family back in Vermont, they wept many tears. One morning after the war was over, the young married man purchased a train ticket with a few dollars and he headed south to Tennessee. He stopped over in New York in an effort to converse with the officer in charge of the brigade his friend had served with. He wanted to understand the approximate location where his friend had fallen in battle. In a nearby community, he had a stone cutter make him a tombstone. He rented a buggy and he drove to the battle site. He erected the marker. He said a prayer of thanksgiving. He wept once again and departed back to Vermont. Two men who had been standing nearby noticed the man placing the marker, praying and weeping, and just had to see what was written thereon. After the buggy was out of sight, they went to the marker and they read these words, which were engraved. He died in my place. He said, this story reminded me of our savior and friend who is a, a, a propitiator. A propitiator is one who goes to the place of another in order to appease the desire or the will of someone who's in authority. Truly, this is what Jesus did. John, in describing the advocacy of Jesus, wrote this in 1 John 2, 2. If any man sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for our sins, but also the sins of the whole world. So John continues in 1 John 4, 10, herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us, and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus was uniquely qualified to go in our place and to die for sin. You and I could not qualify. Paul put it this way, when we were yet without strength, Christ died for the ungodly, Romans 5, 6. Paul goes on to point out, for a righteous man, as in our story, a man would dare to die, but that Jesus died for sinners or unrighteous men who did not deserve his great sacrifice, Romans 5, 7, and 8. However, it must be added that this great Savior who went in our place cannot save us unless we, like the man in our story, exercise faith. Paul penned these words, whom God sent forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God to declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness that he might be just and justifier of him who believes in Jesus. That's what we just read in Romans 3, 25 and 26. He says, the only kind of faith the Bible knows anything about is a faith that's demonstrated, a faith that works by love, Galatians 5, 6. Jesus said it plainly, if you love me, you will keep my commandments in John 14, 15. And in Luke 6, 46, Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I ask? The man in our story demonstrated his love for his friend and he erected a monument to that friendship and love. Then he goes on, he says, and God wants our lives to be that monument. And I love that. 
says that's why the apostle Paul would write in Romans 12, 1, and again, our natural response then to Jesus is in love. He says, Paul, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. What that's saying is in light of what God has done for me and what he's done for you, our, the, the logical, reasonable thing to do is to do what? Is to give our lives to him because nobody loves you like God loves you. Amen. And so that word propitiation, it's so powerful. You know, we need to, we need to spend time understanding it. Yes. I, like I said, I, I think most of us in here go, okay, I do. I understand that Jesus died for me. I get that. He died for the world. He died for me. But then, you know, most of us live our lives going, I think God's disappointed with me. I can't tell you how many people I pray with throughout the course of the week that are going, Pastor Mike, I think God's angry at me. I can tell you this, he's not angry at you. He's not angry at you. He's, he's angry at sin, but he's not angry at you. He, he poured out his anger upon the cross. Now, does that mean that he won't discipline you? <laughs> no, there's a difference. It's like Paul said, I, 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 he didn't fear the wrath of God. He goes, I... I I fear the disappointment of God. Can God be disappointed? Yes. What does scripture tell us? Not to grieve the Holy Spirit, right? Who we have from God. But he's not angry. And, and most believers, I can say that, that I talk with, still struggle late into their life of thinking that, you know, God is still angry at me, that God somehow just, you know, he sits in heaven and, you know, when he sees my life, he's going to go, he's just going to mess things up today because that's what God does. When it's actually the very opposite of what God does. That he's patient. That's why he said he's overlooked things, right? He, he does. And he tells us to do that, right? I mean, does God ask you to do something that he hasn't done himself? And you go, no. That we, that we would be loving, right? That we would be forgiving towards people. The two things that probably the church is most guilty of, right? The lack of love and the lack of forgiveness, right? But man, do we want that, right? You know, we want that. In, and again, and does God lavish it upon us? And you go, absolutely. So when you look at this in, in Romans chapter 4, he says, look there in verses one and two, he says, what then shall we say that Abraham, because remember Abraham, he, he, you wanted to get a Jew's attention, just bring out Abraham, right? Go right back to the beginning because that was their connection. He's the father of the Jewish you know, people. Well, he's also the father of faith, right? So we have our, our connection to Abraham too. But he says, what shall we say that Abraham, our father has found according to the flesh? And it's a question. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God, okay? Abraham, like I said, father of the Jewish nation, he was declared righteous, what? Through faith, by faith. So he says, you know, Paul says, what shall we say? And again, he's, he's alluding back to what, you know, we read last week, you know, does, and especially in verse 31 of chapter three, this justification through faith apart from the works of the law, make what God did in the Old Testament of no value? That was really the question that the Jews had. You go, then what was the point they were asking? You know, being a Jew, I mean, we had the law and we had all these things. And, and again, you know, does, does it mean that the, that the word of God was no good? And he's like, no, you had an advantage, just like we have an advantage over the world. That's why when scripture tells us when Jesus returns, judgment begins where? In the house of God. And you go, why? Because we have an advantage over the world. We know. That's why, you know, when we talk about the things that are going on in the world today, we're, we're not, we're not duped, are we? We see it. We're going, do, I mean, how many times have you used the last days in a conversation over the last year? 
you know, last days. You go, oh, yeah, I used to say last days. You go, no, you go, I did. I used to say last days, but I mean, we're really in the last days now. And you go, COVID just pulled back the curtain and we're seeing it because what? The birth pangs, it's happening faster and faster and faster. And so we, do we believe in the imminent return of Christ? You go, absolutely. And you go, and if he comes today, awesome. If he comes a hundred years from now, what does it do? Nothing doesn't change the way that we live. We're living in light of his return, right? We, we want him to come back and make things right, you know? And, and that should be the hope, you know, of our life. So, you know, what is, what is Paul wanting to prove here? So Paul's point, you know, and he pulls Abraham into this picture. He wants to show that Abraham, how he got right with God. That, that's what he wants us to see. Abraham, our father, has what? Has he found favor according to the flesh? And he's going, no, that's not how he got it. He got it by faith. You know, we, we can't forget that the Bible is primarily you know, a Jewish book, right? Jesus came, you know, first and foremost for the Jew. And through the Jewish nation, he has reached the Gentile. But this primarily, like I said, is, is for the Jewish people. And so as they talk about Abraham, that's, that's their connection here. And he's really, you know, the prime example for them, you know, what it is to believe in God. And not only for the Jew, but for us as well. And if you can use Abraham to prove your point, I mean, you've really got a Jewish person, you've got their attention, you know, because they, Abraham is what they're holding on to. Remember the Pharisees all the time, they would say this to Jesus, right? We have Abraham as our father. You know, they, they, they played the Abraham card as much as they possibly could. And like I said, and because Paul and every missionary journey he went on, he went to a synagogue first. He knew that was the card that they played. So he brings Abraham right into this discourse. He wants them because he wants their attention. So that basically they would do exactly what Abraham did, that they wouldn't trust the works of their flesh, but they would become a friend of God simply the same way you and I do. And that's by trusting God, by believing in God. And so all that God did, he starts with Abraham. The entire plan of salvation begins with Abraham, okay? And so he's, Paul is referring to an incident. You, you can go back and study this when uh, Abraham was 86 years old. You know, it's described there in the book of Genesis in, in chapter 15, you know, Ab Abraham's talking with God and God tells him, hey, let's go for a walk, right? And so God takes him outside. Probably, you know, if you've ever been to the Middle East, I mean, at night, no clouds. I mean, it's like the Milky Way. I mean, there's just millions and billions of stars. And he tells Abraham, look up. And he says, you're, all these stars that you see, he said, your children will be like, your descendants will be like more than all the stars that you can see. And at this point, Abraham doesn't even have a son, right? Doesn't even have a child. So he's just overwhelmed, you know, by what God, you know, would tell him here. And so as he does this, he says, you know, uh, Abraham, this, this is what's going to happen. And it says, and what did Abraham do? It says, Abraham, what? He believed God. Abraham believed God. I mean, just think, you have no child. You're 86 years old, you know? And God says, your children are going to, your descendants are going to be as the stars of the heaven, as the sand of the seashore. I mean, that would be overwhelming. You go, how are you going to like figure that out? You go, you either accept it or you don't. Verse three goes on. It says, for what does the scripture say? It says, Abraham believed God. You want to highlight that in your Bible. You want to study that out because what worked for Abraham is what works for me and you. It says, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So what did Abraham do by the works of the flesh? Nothing. He simply trusted God. That word believe there in Genesis 15, 
Again, it's a Hebrew word. In the Greek, it's amen. It's where we get the word what? Amen. Amen. The word means what? So be it. We need to learn. We say that all the time. We pray and we go, so be it. What, we, what we're doing is when we say amen, we're agreeing with God. We're agreeing with God. The, our life should be an amen. Amen? Is that we just agree with God. Whatever God says. God, you, you said it. That settles it. And because you said it and it's settled, guess what? I do well to believe it. And that's what I want to spend my life doing. Growing in the knowledge of your word, trusting you, believing in you, all the things that that word implies. The word believe, like I said, it, it implies to act upon, to rely upon, to trust in. You think about it, it's an action, right? It's in the present tense. It's not, well, I, I used to believe. You know, I'm doing a, a funeral Friday uh, for a, a, a man that was killed uh, here in Bakersfield. And he was a, was, was a vet. Uh, he served in Afghanistan, came home and, and uh, suffered from, um, um, I mean, depression, went through a divorce, post-traumatic stress syndrome from being in the military. And, you know, basically, you know, for all intents and purposes, you know, his mom was going, uh, you know, I think he was in a backslidden state, you know, but on his arm, he had, he had tattooed, you know, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And it just so happens, you know, I always tell people this, you know, do we serve a God of coincidence or a God of providence? So I'm studying this particular, you know, portion of, of scripture with regard to faith. And I'm thinking about, you know, Abraham, and I'm studying this. And so I'm thinking, you know, in chapter 16, you want to look at this. At the end of chapter 16, you know, Abraham's 86 years old. And he's basically going, you know, um, God's told me you know, we're going to have a son. And so, you know, we're going to, me and Sarah, we've talked about it. God's delayed a little long. We're getting up there in age. Have you ever done that? with you? God's made a promise to you. And then you start trying to figure out how to help God. You ever, anybody ever helped God? Anybody besides me? You helped God? It didn't turn out very well, did it? No, it, it never does. I mean, you think about that. So here's Abraham going, Sarah. And Sarah goes, you know, honey, um, I have my, Hagar, you know, my handmaiden. You know, maybe, you, you know, you could have a relationship with her. We could have a son. We'll adopt him. And maybe God will work his promises that way, right? Nah, it didn't work out so good. You know, we look at today. Is it? Are we still, to this very day, expecting? Experiencing the impact of that bad choice that Abraham made. Yeah, absolutely. And you go, then you go to chapter 17 at the beginning, and Abraham is no longer 86 years old. He's how old? If you look at that, he's 99. 86, 99. What's the math? You math majors. That's how many years? 13. 13 years. There's a gap. You ever had a gap in your relationship with God? What was Abraham doing? Well, he wasn't trusting God. When you study Abraham's life, he's not the, the portrait of great faith. His great faith was exercised when, in that moment, God showed him the stars of the heavens, right? And, and he saw those, and God said, your children will be, and he said, amen, amen. And it says, and in that moment, in that moment, it says, it was accounted unto him righteousness, right? And then you go, what did Abraham do from there? Well, he goes out and he tries to help God, right? Messes things up just a little bit. So what does he do? Well, you figure when he starts out, he sets out with his, his father, right? Terah, and they end up, they're supposed to go, God tells them to go to the land of Canaan, right? They don't go there. They, they decide, you know, hey, we'll, we'll stop a little short. Um, they set up camp, you know, outside of the promised land. They stay there for, what, 10 years or so. 
till his father, you know, dies. You go, and, you know, you look at what the things that he accomplished, and you go, a little bit of a lapse, you know, of faith with regard to his life. And so when he finally, you know, does get to the promised land, what happens? There's, he hears there's a famine in the land, right? So he goes left, and then what does he do? He ends up in where? In Egypt. And you go, is that where God told him to go? No. But, you know, he tried to help God. So he goes down. And on the way down there, he's thinking, hey, you know what? Something could happen. And you know what? Uh, they could try to kill me because my wife is beautiful. Okay? So what does he tell Sarah? He said, we'll tell him you're my what? Your sister. Was he telling the truth? No. So he's lying, right? Was that, is, that, is that demonstrating dinky faith or great faith? probably dinky faith, you know, at that point. Yeah. And so you go, look, look what he does. So uh, he, what does Pharaoh decide to do? He wants to take, you know, Sarah as his wife. He ends up, you know, getting plagued and, and all of a sudden he comes to the realization, you know, that, Hey, uh, this, this woman is Abraham's wife. So he brings, he has more faith than Abraham. So he rebukes Abraham for his actions. Right. And, you know, Abraham takes his wife, you know, they go, they end up going back, um, where they're supposed to be. And then ultimately, you know, you look at this, they come to a place where, like I said, they go, well, we're, we, we need, we need to help God. And so what do they do? At 96 years or excuse me, 86 years old, Abraham, he and Hagar have a son, Ishmael. And like I said, from that point, 86 to 99 is 13 years old when God fulfills his promise. 13 years. You ever had to wait very long for God to fulfill a promise to you? You go, and most people give up. I mean, you think 13 years. It's amazing when you hear, and we all love it, right? When you hear stories of faithfulness where people just went, I just kept believing. I kept believing. Even when there was nothing in my life to believe, but God had made me that promise and I held on to it. And, and again, what do we see here demonstrated in Abraham's life? That even when you and I are faithless, what? God remains faithful. God's faithful to his promises. And so here I am talking with this mom whose son has died and she's, you know, missing him tremendously and, and thinking about, you know, the things that happened in his life. And I said, you know, there's lapses in all of our life. I go, only God knows. Only God knows, you know. And I said, but the thing is, we, we look at, you know, those actions and we think, oh, you know, he did this. And you go, but I wasn't saved by the works of the flesh. I was saved by what Christ has done for me. And then people go, well, yeah, but what if I'm in sin, you know, when Jesus comes back? And I go, there's a pretty good chance. I mean, I, I don't desire that for you or for me. I go, but, you know, as a hypothetical, I said, just say, you know, you run a, a stoplight and you cause an accident. And you're the one who ran the stoplight. You ran a red light. That was sin, right? You broke the law and you died. You didn't even have time to repent. Like, would, would you, and there's literally people that go, oh yeah, you'd go to hell, Pastor Mike. Really? Jesus' blood wasn't sufficient. Well, because you didn't repent. You didn't, you didn't ask for forgiveness. I go, but see, I believe part of what we read about in Revelation 21, when God wipes away every tear from our eye, it's not just the sins of commission that we go, oh God, thank you for forgiving me this sin. It'll be the sins of omission that God himself points out things that you failed to do and things that I failed to do that we're not even, we're not even privy to, but God is. And we'll get there and we understand this great salvation that each of us enjoys. 
and the brokenness that comes with that in, 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 in a love, not in, not in a, a, a fear at all. It's a love that you go, wow, what Jesus has forgiven me of, what Jesus has done for me, what he's done for you. You go, we'll be needing tears to be wiped away. And so to be able just to help her in this moment, you know, in perspective of what the word of God says, not what people say, but what the word of God says. And to rest in that, because you look at Abraham's life and as you really study it out, he was a friend of God because he believed God. But what did he believe God for? What God promised to do, not what Abraham promised to do. When you look at what Abraham did, it's not that encouraging. I mean, he had a, a, a lot of things that, again, even to this very day that the world is still suffering from the relationship there in the Middle East because of the Arab and the Jew relationship that exists because of the failure of Abraham. And you think about it, where was Hagar from? She was from Egypt, right? Well, if he would have obeyed God, would he have ever even have met Hagar? No. You go, and, and, and I, I put this, you know, in my notes, I wanted to share this with you. You know, how many of, of our sins are complications of previous sins that continue to plague us? And I, I heard the pastor share that. And I was like, wow, that, that just stuck with me. How many of our sins like Abraham's are complications of previous sins that continue to plague us? That's why we need to ask God, you know, wash me, purge me, cleanse me, you know, from my sin. But you think about, you know, what does that tell us about Abraham? Abraham experienced in his own life, huge gaps of faith. Have you ever noticed that about your own life? Are there gaps in your really trusting God? You know, I want to say, oh yeah, we trust him, but I mean, really, really trusting God. And then in Genesis 17, you know, God told Abraham that he'd give he and Sarah a son and through his son, you know, Abraham would become the father of many nations. You know, and, and Abraham was trying to do what? He was trying to convince God to do what? To use Ishmael. He said, I already got a son. You know, I got one. You know, and what did, what did God say about Ishmael? He rejected him. He said, he's a product of what? Your flesh. Yeah. He's a product of your flesh. Your lack of faith. Remember what Sarah did when she heard the news that she was going to be pregnant? She laughed, right? And then when, when the angel of the Lord, you know, confronted her, what did she do? She lied. So even Sarah had lapses of faith. You know, this, this isn't, you know, the, I mean, we think about it, you know, Abraham and Sarah, the, you know, the matriarch and patriarch, you know, of faith, they had lapses in their own faith. And I don't say that as an excuse for my lack of faith or yours. What I'm saying is, thank God my salvation isn't predicated on my faith in your faith. Ultimately, it's predicated on, on the grace and the mercy and the love of God. And what God has done for us and what he's offered to us in Christ Jesus. Even after she became pregnant, remember, um, you know, their king Abimelech, you know, he saw Sarah and uh, he wanted her, you know, for a wife. And, and again, here Abraham goes to the same thing again. He says, just tell him you're my sister, you know. And why is he, why is he doing that? Why would, why would Abraham tell someone that, you know, Sarah was his sister? Was it for her benefit or for his? His. He didn't want to die. You know, Sarah's like, thanks a lot. You know, you just keep selling me off, you know, to, to other people. I think, you know, there's a lot of marriage counseling going on, you know, with this couple, you know, here. But, uh, you know, it's just an amazing story. 
So I guess my point in all this is, you know, what did Abraham do to become the father of faith? When you look at his life and what he did, and yet God calls him the father, he's the father of our faith. And you go, how did he become the father of faith? That's why I titled the message, Can I Have an Amen? He said, Amen to God. He just said, Amen to God. God, you know, so be it. <laughs> yeah, God, you, you said it. I looked up into the, you showed me, you, you showed me the stars of the heavens and I can't comprehend how it's all going to work. But you said that my descendants are going to be more the, than the stars of the heavens. And, and amen, so be it. So how you're going to pull it off? I don't know, but man. And it says, and it was accounted unto Abraham righteousness. God put it in his account. He believed God. And what was true of Abraham is true of even you and I. Why? Because even more faithless, God remains faithful. And I love that. And I shared with you that term accounted. It just, it's an accounting term. It just means, you know, it's a banking term. You know, God put something in, in your account or a credit uh, to your account that wasn't previously there. He took what was in his account and he put it into yours. When you say what? Amen to God. When you say yes to God, God is faithful. According to LifeWay Research, three quarters of Americans, 77%, say that people must contribute to their own effort for personal salvation. So sad. You must contribute. 77% of Americans believe that. And over half, 52%, believe that good deeds help them earn a spot in heaven. As I'm saying, that, that's what I hear all the time from people. No, we're not saved by good works. We're saved what? Unto good works. Your works don't save you but they'll become the evidence that you are saved. Verse four goes on. It says, now to him who works with the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. He says, you know, so if you, you work for what's not grace, again, it, it's a debt that's owed. It's when you go to work, you know, every day and you get paid a paycheck, you expect, you know, you expect payment for the work that you do. But if your boss just gave you money, you just came in, they just gave you money because he loves you or she loves you. That would be, grace. And, you know, when Abraham uh, received the lamb, when he received the son, his son, when he received his descendants, did Abraham receive them because he was good or was it because God was good? You go, it's because God was good. Yeah. I mean, was Abraham good at keeping the law? When you look at him, the law hadn't been given yet, but you look at, did he exemplify those things? You go, no. Was he good at really obeying God? You study his life and I don't really see it. But each and every time that he trusted God, what happened? He experienced the blessings of God. And what's true for Abraham is true for me and you. God's not looking at you. He's, well, you know, you didn't trust me last time. So that's what we do, right? Do it to me once. Shame on what? You. Do it to me twice. What? Shame on me. Yeah. But with God? No. You don't, like I said, one of the great mysteries, you know, that when you fully comprehend this. You don't have a past with God. Paul said, I, all things are lost. The mercies of God are new, what? Yesterday. No, they're new today. They're new every morning. And great is his faithfulness. You ever made a deal with God? You ever put conditions on your faith? Like, God, if you do this, you know, I hear that all the time. I told God, you know, if you'll do this, then I'll, you know, it's like, <sighs> no, it doesn't work that way. No. God's God. It's his way, but there's no way. 
Verse five goes on and says, but to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. So the law doesn't advance you, okay? Faith in God and what he does is what advances us. See, many believers just think, you know, you know, God's not blessing me, so I'm just going to read more, and I'm going to pray more, and I'm going to do more. It's do, 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 do. You know, and then you read the Beatitudes, and it's blessed are they. You know, it's Beatitudes. Be, it's not do, it's be. Be, be, be. Be, 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 be. You know, Charles Wesley, you know, read his autobiography, his life. It's a great read. And he used to, he'd go, man, I have so many things to do. He said, I would get up every day earlier and earlier because he said, I had so many things to, so much to accomplish during the course of that. I needed more time to pray and to see God. And it seems kind of backwards, right? That you'd think, well, if you got so much to do, you need more rest, right? You need to sleep longer. He's like, you know, because he truly believed Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so though his days were very busy, he said, man, I got to have time when I can just sit before God and I can be filled overflowing with his presence in my life. You know, because we can't work for God's blessing, but we can trust him more for his blessing. You know, I, I would really encourage you that this next thought, you know, that you'd write this down and think about this, this week or just, you know, memorize it if you've got that kind of photographic memory. I don't, but I put my notes. We don't work for God's blessing. We work from God's blessing. We don't work for God's blessing. We work from God's blessing. See, there's not two ways of salvation, saved by works through keeping the law in the Old Testament, and then in the New Testament, saved by grace through faith. You know, that's not how it works. Everybody who's ever been saved in both the Old and the New Testament has been saved by God's grace through faith, through the relationship, through their trusting, through their loving God, okay? You know, because in the New Testament, though, again, what do we see? Is a new covenant. The new covenant has been revealed to us through Jesus Christ. So guess what? We have a greater benefit, right, of our salvation because the Old Testament saints, you know, they didn't have the revelation of Jesus that you and I have. So again, we have a greater revelation, but uh, again, we don't have a different manner of salvation. And Paul would go on, then he closes it with this in verses six through eight here this morning. He says, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man who God imputes righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord shall not impute sin. So here, if if Abraham wasn't enough, and again, if you have the opportunity to go to Israel, almost every street in Israel is named David. It's got David in it. You know, there's something David. It's easy to get lost. I, we're, we're talking to a tour guide. They go, so what street were you on? I go, well, we're staying at David something. And the guy's like looking at me, are you kidding me? And I'm like, well, it had David in it. And he goes, you know, uh, sir, every street has David in it. You know, and we look and you go, you're right. It's like, ah. So here Paul is using, you know, Israel's favorite son to teach them about faith here. So he, he points to King David that he agrees with Abraham, you know, as David himself knew personally what it was like to be guilty, to be a sinner before God. David knew you know, the seriousness of sin and how good it is to be truly forgiven of God. And that's why he quotes Psalm 32. And it's a great Psalm, you know, for you to study through here with regards to verses six through eight there. 
You know, what, what would happen? Think about this. What would happen if David was judged by works alone? What David did. What, what would happen if, if, you know, God said, he says, thou shalt not commit adultery, right? Thou shalt not commit what? Murder? You know, you go, oops. Where would David be today? He'd be dead. For the wages of sin is what? Death. It's no different than the New Testament was in the Old. And so David understood that if he was judged on his life by works alone, that a righteous God would have to condemn him to death. But David also knew by experience there in verse 7, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. And David knew full well, verse 8, where it says, blessed is the man whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Let me ask you as we close here today, have you experienced God's forgiveness in your own life? Have you come face to face with your own sin? Are you trying to, you know, cover it because you're thinking that, you know, you're saved by good works and those sins were not good works. And so those are the things that are going to, you know, it, you've so far on your, you know, your list, you know, you've got a do's and don'ts or good or bad or whatever, the, the bad are outweighing the good. And so you feel the stress and the strain of this. And you're going, I don't think I'm in today, Pastor Mike, because there's more bad stuff in my life than you would understand. You know, the need for grace today that you go, you're not going to get in based on the good in your life because guess what? The bad will always outweigh the good. Always. And you go, why? And you go, because all it took was one sin. It, it stacks the deck against us. The wage of sin is death. One single sin would separate us from God. You know God's grace today? You know it to the extent that he desires? He wants you to accept it. He wants you to believe in faith that you can have your sins forgiven. See, you'll struggle because you go, well, I don't deserve it because what I did is I did it knowingly. And could be true. Could have been unknowingly. But usually it's the sins that we're familiar with that we struggle. David did, you know, in Psalm 32 for a year before Nathan the prophet, you know, when he came. And he said, while he struggled with repenting and turning to God, he says, my bones, his whole body hurt. If you ever, you know, tried to hide sin in your life, you've probably experienced that for yourself. The stress and the strain that comes with that, the pain. And God's going, you know, you could get past this really quick because that's why I sent my son to die on a cross for you. See, but here's, here's, here's where we struggle. We try to figure out why God loves us. And guess what? You can't figure it out. It's, it's beyond comprehension. God's a choosing God. He's an electing God. He, God, there's something that's hidden in the heart of God that God would accept me and you, that he would give us unmerited favor and unmerited grace. Our lives should just simply be the thank you, you know, that we would just live the rest of our life going, you know, Lord, you know, I can't, I can't work, you know, for your blessing, but I can work from your blessing in my life. And, and from this day forward, God, I just, I want to live in accordance with your word. Isn't that what David wrote in Psalm 51? He said, God, if you would just wash me and cleanse me and make me clean, he goes, then, you know, would I, would I turn sinners from their way? Because he goes, now I'd be in a place that I could because I wouldn't be a, a hypocrite any longer because you've washed me, but I would definitely relate to them. I would definitely know what they're thinking. I would definitely know what they're feeling. And I would say, you know, guess what? Bring those things to God today. 
Bring your sin before God. Bring those doubts, bring those fears, bring those things that are creating the gaps in your truly believing God today. And God go, you know what? Because your word says it, that settles it, and I'm going to believe it. And then the amen, you go, so be it. So be it, God. And if you and I would just trust him, again, we can't outgive God, can we? we? There's just no possible way that we can do it. But that love can be demonstrated in our life. How do we, how do we demonstrate it? Simply by loving God, loving people, accepting the forgiveness of God. And when you've truly accepted the forgiveness of God, guess what? Forgiven people do what? They forgive. People that feel unforgiven don't want to forgive other people. But when you've been forgiven, you want to forgive. Remember how it was when you first got saved? The, I mean, think about the day that you got saved. You felt clean, didn't you? Maybe for the very first time in your life. You felt forgiven. You, you felt like, like Logan, like a newborn baby. And, and just let God hold you. You had no care in the world. And your circumstances hadn't changed, but everything had changed because you knew the grace of God for the very first time in your life that comes by faith. That you go, God, I don't get it, but I receive it. That you love me and you died for me. I'll never figure it out. I'll never fully comprehend it. But God, thank you. Thank you from the bottom of my heart and help me to live the rest of my life like that means something to me. And Jesus said, you know, everyone will know that you're my disciples because you have love one for another. Because the love that God has for you, you'll receive and you'll let that love begin to flow from your life. Not just to the people who love you, but especially to the people who don't love you. And it's not just forgiving the people who do love you, but forgiving the people who won't forgive you. Then you start seeing, you go, oh, that's, because that's exactly what Jesus did. That's trusting God. That's believing him. That's relying on him. That's the amen. That's the so be it God of our life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, pray that, Lord, as we study this book, God, I, I'm, I'm getting it more and more each week. Why, Lord, this book has been so responsible for revival breaking out all around the world. And I pray this week that revival would break out afresh in each of our hearts, in each of our lives, in our church, Lord, that, God, we would come to understand in a greater capacity the love of the Father that he has for us, that we would be called the children of God, that you would send Jesus into this world to take our sin, remove it from us, to be our propitiation, to satisfy the debt, but also to remove the anger that, God, you're not mad at us. You are madly in love with us. And that, God, we would comprehend that because it's love that transforms. It's love that changes from the inside out. Lord, may we know that love today. And may that love overflow each and every one of our lives. And may it touch the world around us that so desperately needs the love of God. We don't just need revival. The whole world needs revival. And so, God, use us, we pray. For your glory, for our good, we pray these things today in the wonderful name of Jesus. And we all agreed saying amen. 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 Well,